0: Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about millennials. So I
1: kind of have a problem with doing a generational identity thing with millennials where we're like grouping a bunch of diverse people into this one category. And I don't think it works. And I also think the connotation is negative, and I don't think that's necessarily fair. So I kind of want to start there where we're like ignoring diversity and just calling people in one entire generation millennials
0: yeah i think that that's probably a feature of the way that we think about history as white history so i think about um, you know the baby boomers or the silent generation or Gen X and how those are represented as like a cultural descriptor of a group of people in a particular generation and I think you're right that um, those kind of descriptors are always and already white so I agree that that's a total problem and it, and it works to erase black and brown experiences um, it, completely I think from a generational cohort
1: it's certainly like a form of bigotry i feel because i think calling people millennials and using that term is mobilized against young folks and there are already plenty of things that are difficult (laughs) for them anyway like i don't think like upward mobility i don't think applies to our generation and going to college. Like, doing productive things for your life, like going to college, isn't as secure or as reliable as it once was. Like, a college degree is a prerequisite, but it's not enough to guarantee you a job anymore. And it's extremely, I mean, it's less affordable to go to college than it has ever been. So, it's hard to then have this label waged against you also, So it's just, like, a subtle form of bigotry.
0: I think two things about that. One, I think, is your point about the youth, and I think you're right, that both the baby boomers and millennials, as generational... I guess Gen X, too. As generational descriptors are terms that undermine, like, especially the political engagement and efficacy of young people, and I suppose that's why I think, like, the Parkland students uh, have captured America's imagination, because, um, because they are articulating a kind of very public political perspective that is very captivating, and they're not all white, and so I think that that's an interesting place, you know, to think about the limitations of the descriptor millennials mm-hmm. as a generational cohort. The other side of your comment is about labor, and I do think that there's something useful perhaps to be recuperated from millennials in thinking about the way in which this generation is forced to is f- being forced to come to terms with uh, the end of the, you know, Cold War, post-World War II boom and bust economy that pretty much defined the 20th century. And with, you know, mechanization, or robots, and, you know, sort of the technologizing of the workforce, as well as the tra- massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich, um, and especially Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United that, that help to keep that wealth as a generational transference within white families in the 1%, I think that perhaps there is utility in keeping the millennial designator as a way of understanding this moment as one that's hype, that is hyper-focused on capital. So I think millennials, it's a term that's about youth, but it's also about wealth. Right. And so if you think about how many, you know, clickbait articles you've read about millennials, it's like how to make them work harder, how to get them to be better little capitalists. You know, why are they so disenfranchised about labor? And it's like, oh, because they're being underpaid and they're not accruing assets and they're watching kids get shot by police. Like, there are a bunch of different reasons. But I think that that millennial descriptor is fundamentally a signal about a a generational cohort whose relationship to wealth and assets is changing. I like that you pointed out that
1: underlying um, aspect of what the label, millennial... Is actually about. Um, One thing I do think about this generation though is that they're beginning to like shift their tone about capitalism. I mean like most of our lives have been centered around consumption growing up and that's not necessarily changing but I think um, a lot of Millennials have a different relationship with capital than our predecessors so, like, it's okay to have a different lifestyle where you're, like, a touring musician or a lifestyle where you're living paycheck to paycheck or even a lifestyle where you're still living with your parents and trying to figure it out. Like, I, I feel like there's a lot of, like, shame about those types of lifestyles, but they're perfectly acceptable. And I think this generation is uh, more accepting of a lifestyle where you're not, like... A runaway, like, business tycoon or something. Yeah,
0: it's not know? Wall Street, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's not Michael J. Fox yeah, in the and 80s. Yeah, and Bernie
1: Sanders enjoyed, you know, <laughs> a lot of popularity in this last campaign, you know, with a more sensible approach about wealth,
0: Yeah, I thought. But, um... Yeah, I mean, part of the thing that's driving that, though, is massive debt, Right. So that's where the wealth debate Mm -hmm. gets really complicated for millennials, because it's not like as a generational cohort, they have like all of these choices like, okay, I could be a couch surfer or I could be a tycoon. Right. It's not a choice. It's not a politics of choice. It's a politics of exclusion and then debt. Right. Especially student loan debt, but also credit card debt. And so thinking about the millennials as a generation, I think, is useful in understanding um, how that generation is being undermined, um, and I think that, you know, financially, and I think that there's potential transformative potential there, so I think you're totally right that there are opportunities to transform attitudes about wealth and patterns of consumption as a result, um, but it's also i think entirely likely that the massive concentration of wealth in the top 1% is just going to systematically disenfranchise you know most of the middle class in in ways that may not necessarily be progressive like the progressive politics might not come from it the democratic party i think if they're wise will understand that moving to the right cost them a <laughs> thousand you know <laughs> seats in the state legislature and flip both as senate and the house and flip the white house and so they need to go left and i think wealth is one place where millennials obviously have some, you know, some empirical evidence from their own mm. lives to rethink how wealth and politics go together. I hope that that's a thing that happens. I'm not sure that it will.
1: Well, I, I also think we have to discuss some of the labels that are, like, the, that frequently accompany a description of a millennial. Like oh, yeah, totally. lazy. <laughs> um, because, I don't know, I mean, if you're not being paid a fair wage, if you've, like, <laughs> had to work for everything that you've earned and it's not enough like yeah. that doesn't make you lazy so i feel like there are a lot of derogatory terms and lazy is just one of them that are like associated with our um, this generation and i i don't think it's necessarily fair like i i work as a server. And I work with mostly people who you would categorize as millennials I think
0: right 1981 mo- or later most yeah right
1: mm-hmm. I think the ages range from like 20 to 35 um, at, at my workplace and I mean I think most of the people I work with are like I mean it's like the smartest cohort of people I've ever. <laughs> been around and I you know I've worked like corporate jobs so yeah. I mean as a whole my co-workers at a restaurant yeah <laughs> servers are like intelligent emotion like their intelligence is extremely high they're like they are extremely empathetic they're also extremely smart and capable <laughs> and hardworking, and they just haven't had a fair shake about job opportunities you know
0: well so yeah a couple things about that so one thing is that millennials are actually the largest generation in the workforce which is super interesting as the workforce is changing as norms and values about about labor are changing and so it's very interesting to watch the teacher strikes right in oklahoma and west virginia because i think that the the financial problems that are really um inhibiting the millennial you know generation from achieving the financial success of you know previous uh cohorts hinges on what has been a total war on public education and so it's very interesting it will be very interesting to see how the politics of public education figure into what ends up being the history of this generation the second thing is that millennials are almost as large as baby boomers in as a generational cohort um, in the electorate So when you think about those derogatory terms like lazy and, you know, and especially the things entitled um, and especially... You know, those faux studies, bad science, fake science. um, That's all about how millennials have lower literacy levels or whatever. All of that stuff, I think, is aimed at also undermining the political efficacy of millennials when they are such a huge portion of the electorate. And it will be very interesting to see, I think, in the next two electoral cycles, what happens with millennials and which wh- how they start shaping you know politics? I think the indivisible guide is part of you know white millennials especially and um, the way in which they are conceiving their role in public life, you know, political life, changing. Um, and then you see you know I think much more um, public organizing of black and brown organizations um, who are really taking. Um, youth of color seriously Mm -hmm. and creating space for them to be political agents in a way that we really have not seen since the late 1960s and early 1970s. And so I think that there is space for, for them to use this rupture, like this historical rupture in American democracy, to create a different kind of political impetus. Right, There's so many of them. (laughs) The other thing is that they're they're like, they're working, but they're not working like high school jobs. Like they don't have jobs in high school. And so they're working later, but more of them are working. And they're working a lot of minimum wage jobs or two jobs at a time. And it's gonna be very interesting to see how the shifting labor market also influences their ideas about like long range plans. So they're having children later, right? They're not buying homes. I mean, we're going to see another huge housing crisis. And it's not that millennials are, like, shunning homes. They can't afford them. So there's, like, this weird argument that takes place about putting ownership on millennials. Like, they have all of this choice, and they're, like, actively, you know, choosing a different America, when it's a forced choice, right, that that undermines our ability to see the systemic disenfranchisement of millennials financially, educationally, socially, and politically.
1: I mean, they're... This generation is fundamentally going to have to change capitalism or like the way that we practice it here. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're not, we're not affording people the kind of work opportunities that allow them to afford the lifestyle that we've been cultivating uh, for families in America for a long time. So I feel like this generation is going to they want less and that's a trend like they want to consume less um (laughs) I mean they're living by like a system of values that is like the only way to be rich is to want less oh yeah yeah. and it's not because they've chosen that like you said earlier like they're trying to (laughs) to operate with limited resources and limited means um so I do really think that something is gonna have to shift because this like system of ex- excess and like the value system of wealth, I mean, it's not attainable no. any longer. <laughs> and also, I think uh, millennials feel kind of like <sighs> deliberately excluded from that. Like this little, it's like a toy or a treat that's being hung over their head that they're never going to get.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's no carrot, there's only yeah. stick. Yeah, I you know, it's it's interesting because I keep I keep thinking about the Department of Education and Betsy DeVos, who's obviously an idiot. And I'm thinking about just sort of how the div- divestment from public education and what will and you know, this the Trump tax bill. I'm thinking about how the erosion of the social safety net is really going to prompt a massive crisis. Um, among what it, the quote-unquote middle class and the poor, and they are going to get hosed. And it is coming like a freight train. And it and it, the intended goal, right, is to disrupt the middle class and force a ton of their assets, like it's like asset forfeiture, right? Like it's basically smash and grab capitalism. And so it, it would be very interesting to see how millennials respond to this massive divestment of social welfare programs on which they rely, right? Whether that's emergency services or the national parks or roads and transportation or, you know, public works projects, all of that stuff is being massively underfunded and there is going to be Systemic collapse of organizational systems in the United States within their lifetime—that's above and beyond the ecological crises and, like, obviously the international crises that may or may not be precipitated in the next ten years. Um, you know, as the U.S. empire kind of crumbles, and I think, like I said, I think that there are reasons to think about this that create space for a different kind of possibility. I just don't know if it will be realized. I was also thinking about like this Zuckerberg, Facebook, Russia scandal in Millennials, and thinking about the role of technology in both defining the cohort and constraining the cohort and its ability to participate politically. And just thinking through, you know, how millennials use technology and how that may augment or undermine their ability to participate in politics. What do you think about technology as, like, a defining feature of, I mean, and here we're using millennials in that super white way, right? On the other side, you've got, like, BLM, right, which is also aggregating technology as a way of creating a different kind of rhetorical landscape for um you know, Black Lives Matter and for arguments about anti-black state violence. So what do you think about technology?
1: I mean, I think it's actually a bit of a distraction for a lot of folks. I mean, I feel like mm, most of, like, people's access point, especially young folks, their access point to the world and other people is through technology and especially social media right now Mm -hmm. and i also think there's way too much information like our brains were not (laughs) you know evolved to handle the like rush of information that is now available like uh, it takes a lot of attention to like stay up to date through social media, and there's a constant like refreshing, yeah, and <laughs> totally, and access to like information at any given point. So, I feel like it's going to affect how people uh, identify and how they see themselves, and the amount ima- like how much is infiltrated our <laughs> our lives is pretty bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and obviously, in earlier podcasts, we've talked a lot about political feelings because that's obviously something that I'm writing about right now and thinking about really hard. And I'm thinking about, you know, the millennial co-ho- cohort, like broadly construed, not just the white folks, but um, as an anxious generation. So I'm thinking about sort of the affective language that's used to describe them, and I think that there there is some there is some utility in thinking through the way in which um, generations look at millennials as having a different kind of affective orientation towards the nation, towards wealth, towards politics, towards futurism, and how they think about their future, how they think about themselves, and a- obviously anxiety is a place to think about that. I think, you know, mental health is a place where we should think about millennials and, and about the, b- the rising cost of health care and the erosion of um, access to health care and health insurance and what does it mean, right, to, to to live in this world where your parents cannot articulate what kinds of major cultural shifts are happening that are completely changing the kinds of options available to you, right, to live in, um, I think... Yeah, and and I don't mean just anxiety about wealth. I mean anxiety about the police. I mean anxiety, you know, about housing. I mean, we're going to have another huge housing bubble, right, that's going to burst in the next probably two years. So, like, like, all of these things are a cyclical process, but the moment is ripe with political anxiety and then also an erosion of health services. And that also seems like a recipe for disaster for millennials and something that they need that, you know, that it's worth thinking about as a generational cohort that they really need to be aware of. How could you not
1: be anxious oh, yeah, no, as totally. a young person in this culture? The way that we orient our lives is largely aspirational and a lot of the opportunities are not realistic any longer. Yeah, totally. So it's like, what is there to aspire to? <laughs> and I mean, that has to be a tough, That young people are grappling with, and it's not because they're lazy or entitled or unwilling to do certain kinds of work. Like, they have their entire orientation has been aspirational, and then they reach the point where they're like entering the
0: workforce, and the opportunities are pretty dismal. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, But I will say that the, the bright side of that, and obviously I'm not very good at the glass half full, is that millennials do have these a- attitudes and um, expectations about community and about, like, f- you know... F- like farm to table, they use live public libraries or bookmobiles more than any other generation has in the past. Like, it there is a sense in which millennials understand community in a very different way than Gen Xers did, right? Like my generation, we're all like alienated, right? Mm-hmm. It's all reality bites, and we're all disaffected, and we listen to Nirvana and you know Public Enemy and you know like that's the thing. And the millennials are not angry, exactly, right? Although there is a possibility that this Parkland thing will help harness some generational anger that will have a political vector that's productive beyond just like symbolic action that doesn't have an ask and will get no concessions from the state. It's possible that that's the case, although I think it's going to take more time, certainly while the, you know, Congress shifts uh, if it does. And so, um, yeah, I no, obviously they're going to feel that way because the things are topsy-turvy right now. And there is no coherent narrative of na- nation or of future. And there's certainly not a national narrative about a shared futurity that the whole country is participating in. It's, that's totally fragmented. It's just totally identity politics and, you know, an erosion of, of civic discourse. So, I think that their feelings are completely understandable and a predictable outcome of you know this stage of late capitalism and its and its role within neoliberal you know nepotistic kleptocratic mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, state. I
1: wonder if you think that that ch- change in tone is like born out of necessity, like they need community to survive, or if it's like greater access to information about other people and a more a more connected society in general where you're like able to you hear stories about other people and other races and you have more access to that.
0: Okay, here's what I want to say about that. I, I want to take a different I want to take a contemporary like phenomenon. And then think about it. So I'm thinking about all of these marches, right, from the Women's March after the Trump inauguration to the marches on science and the Parkland March. All of these, I think, are symbolic of the fact that people feel hyper-alienated and extremely anxious and not optimistic about the future, and they do not feel like they have any social power, and except to take up public space and march. That's... Problematic, Right. Not just because they have those feelings, but also because marches are pretty ineffective ways to get concessions from a state that doesn't value protest. Right. So um, on the one hand, those people are looking for community of a particular kind. And on the other hand, uh, m- marches are not going to bring them the kind of community that they so desperately crave. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how millennials interface with, uh, this political moment beyond the Parkland shooting, um, to see if maybe the millennials have a more inclusive futurist politics. And so I'm thinking about like the pictures in, in Time Magazine and like the pictures of the Parkland survivors and how they are this like multicultural four or five or six you know person group of kids from this wealthy school district in Florida and thinking about what the representational politics of their actual bodies is as like a visual uh, meme of where we are politically and thinking about um, imagining the future, and you know, I talk about I talked about this a little bit on the on the uh, futurity episode where we're thinking about what it means to imagine futures. I think that the millennial generation is going to have to come up with a bunch of new imaginary places to push the culture, because my the Gen Xers we have worked ourselves to death. <laughs> you know, and are pretty much, I mean, there, there are some of us that are still doing really great work, but on the whole, we're the last generation who really had like all of our surplus labor was drained into neoliberal markets. Mm -hmm. And so I just don't know who else in the culture has the capacity um, to be able to generate futurist imaginings. I just don't know that it's my generation.
1: I don't know. I, I hope that there is the possibility to generate places like that, but I think a big part of the transition is going to be tearing places, institutions, down. Oh, I agree. So, I don't know what kind of space exists for things to be recreated yet, because there's a lot of work that has to go into, like, changing the narrative.
0: Yeah, I mean, I am generally of the opinion that the accelerationist argument, like, let's tear, like, let's elect Trump to burn it down, right? That kind Mm -hmm. of, like, cheerful nihilism (laughs) of the political is generally a bad argument. Um, But I'm thinking about what DeVos is doing in the Department of Education and how the erosion of, like, you know, disability rights and the ADA and... Civil rights (laughs) and Title IX, and what it's going to mean to take all of that 40 years of like progressivism out of public education at a time where privatization is also a total failure. And so, will these protests, these teachers' walkouts, reinvigorate unions? and what does that mean right in terms of collective action it means a ton because in a lot of states especially the right to work states there really aren't places where people learn how to be political agents in a way that they interface with the state they don't they simply do not have that you know the church has become lobbying groups for a whole lot of reasons mostly that began during the reagan administration but in terms of like collective action around labor where you collectively reimagine your relationship to it without unions i'm not sure like how that happens I I just don't know but the best place that we've had thus far in America has been unions so I just I wonder you know where millennials will fall on the union issue and if that becomes a major space for them to reimagine their generation and sort of what the nation looks like what they want from the state you know
1: I don't know I feel like they're too alienated to do that I don't like collectivism is a priority for any one right now
0: (laughs) i just don't know though because it can't the data the data is good though right that they are using public services and they want a different kind of community and that you know the, the desire is there the appetite is there whether or not they themselves will actualize that right i don't know but I do think that there is, I think that the gun conversation is so important because it speaks to alienation and it's the alienation of whiteness and of white supremacy as the driving force of alienation in public life. That conversation exists now in a way that it certainly did not in like the 80s right mm-hmm. and so it's like okay well so we have this moment of foreclosure right where there's a radical privatization of politics from the executive and legislative branches and that's going to really reshape the judiciary in ways that are going to be really hard to combat so what do you do like the political realm has to exist outside right of of like traditional politics and that's where unions are i'm not really sure what what other kind of organizational space will be able to you know create the kinds of leaders that the generation needs right either from within their own cohort or from without so yeah i they are alienated for sure but i you know but i but the teacher strikes are uh, there that's a data set it's a good sign it's a data set i mean it's just helpful i think to see because you know and gen x life was not characterized right i mean like The Reagan administration, yeah, okay, Reagan, like, totally screwed over the air traffic controllers, right? (laughs) Like, this, like, my childhood was not characterized by union wins. The steel, you know, mills closed, and the rust belt began, and, like, all of that stuff was the death of unions. So Gen X doesn't have experience with union life in the way that previous generations did, or the ways that perhaps millennials might, So I don't know. And I also think that it's very interesting to see in Congress, you know, members of Congress, uh, Kristen Gillibrand in particular, who are coming out to support like, you know, like the federal job guarantee. Like if that if the Democrats take up federal job guarantee as an issue, they will win. Right. They will win super hard. But there is no coherent narrative coming out of the Democratic Party in Washington, and so it will be interesting to see which bits of the pushback on privatization become part of the Democratic Party, Or which ones that Democratic Party elites refuse to reimagine from within, you know, party politics. Because Mm -hmm. that's also, I think, a bulwark against millennials thinking in new ways about their relationship to capital when the progressive, quote unquote, party right in the United States refuses to take on issues of work and labor, you know, in the way that they really need to to re-energize American political life. I
1: mean, I have a hard time imagining the millennials as a mobilized group because their attention is so divided. Especially with the internet and social media. I mean, they're looking down at their phones and not out at the world a lot. So I have a lot of trouble believing that they're going to mobilize in ways that are like, require collective action. Look, they have the right ideas. They're smart. They're capable. They are. Yeah. Um, but they're c- consistently underemployed, uh, underappreciated, and their attention is constantly demanded from social media platforms that distract from time, the time that it takes to actually build a movement.
0: Yeah, but this is what I'm saying with the Parkland kids what if they're leading from behind? which is really how politics works, right? Cuz they're on they're on the other end of the millennials, right? Mm-hmm. They're on in the next generational cohort. So what if they are the ones who are doing the the leading from behind that are pushing to radicalize the millennials? That's possible. It's also possible that the millennials in the next 10 years become a totally different, you know, group of people that the that the dimensions of their cohort become defined by different things, right? So I just think that, you know, we started this episode thinking about the ways in which that label millennial is reductionist. I think we want to keep that in mind as we we think about, you know, what does it mean for a generational cohort to change? For example, the baby boomers, right, a bunch of them were hippies, (laughs) and then a bunch of them voted for Reagan, right? Generational cohorts change over time. And so it will be interesting to see if that is a generation that will radicalize or whether it will become conservative like previous generations. And I mean that across race. The other thing is, is with America browning, right, the browning of America, where, you know, the census suggests that by 2050, America will be majority brown and minority white, that kind of concentration of racial power is going to lead to totally different political dynamics. I think it's entirely possible that America comes to look like South African apartheid by 2050 if there is not a radical reimagination of democracy and its relationship to labor and social and racial violence, anti-black violence in particular. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by, or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.